this week on Punch Mountain. Finally, a Dungeons & Dragons movie that will make me proud to get stuffed in my high school gym locker. Get ready to roll a natural 20 because we're watching Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, tut tut, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined as always by the action Sherpa himself, the find out to my fuck around, easily a 12th level paladin, Mr. David Hada. David Hada, how you doing? A 12th level paladin? How You know how much XP I need to get to become a 12th level paladin? That is, I've lived a hard life, my dude. Uh, I, I guess. I don't know. I don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> I referenced that, David, because we're talking about a movie that came out last year. Uh, 2023 Dungeons and Dragons H Among T's Honor Among Thieves uh David let's get let's just get into it real quick let's get the fuck into it did you ever play Dungeons and Dragons growing up I never once played Dungeons and Dragons I don't think I could amass that many friends I think that was the one thing holding me back I'm sure if I had enough friends I would have loved this uh universe and loved this game but I'd never got into it it seemed just above my age demographic it was always for like Upper teenagers, like the kids who smoked under the big tree in high school, uh, I know very little about any of this, about the world of Dungeons & Dragons, about how to play Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, my girlfriend says it's just math with some light improv, so uh, I, I guess that's what the game is. But I've never really had a relationship with Dungeons & Dragons at all, but then my girlfriend, the bombshell, got Baldur's Gate 3 for Christmas, and she has not stopped playing it. She has played it every day since. She is in love with the game. She's on her second play of it, so I guess her first replay of it. And so I didn't know that it was a part of the Dungeons & Dragons universe. I'm just watching her play this game, and it's this role-playing game, and they it's a literal, like, you roll dice in the game, and you try to hit a certain number, and I'm like, oh, this is neat. And it wasn't until I watched this movie that the bombshell told me, hey, stupid, this is all the same world. This is a Dungeons & Dragons game, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I was very excited that Dungeons & Dragons is getting a new life now, and it's it's shedding the reputation of being for nerds only, and now it's a video game and a movie. But I like this movie a lot. I'll say that right out of the gate. I'm really proud of this movie in a weird way for that same reason, just because it's a fun movie, and it's not for nerds only, and it's not a nerd movie. It's fun to see people who actually care about the intellectual property making content. And looking at the trivia or the backstory for this movie, the script passed through a lot of hands, or a lot of people tried their hand at a script for this movie. So I'm glad that there was some level of competition involved where, hey, you know, at the end of this, we might actually get a pretty decent script. And I think they did. I think they got a fantastic movie out of it. I am excited to talk about it. Mac Blake, what is your relationship to Dungeons and Dragons? I like this movie as well. I was never, I never played Dungeons and Dragons, probably because I'd be too good at it. But no, I, I really enjoyed this movie. And here's the thing. I, I heard good things about it, but then it kind of like disappeared. And then the box office was low. And, and again, you know, we talked about this recently that for people equate, uh, you know, box office with quality, which is, you know, not necessarily the case. But after watching this movie, I enjoyed it so much. I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard more about it. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Like I heard it might get a sequel and by heard, I mean red. And I, I hope it does. And I, w I wonder if it's one of those things kind of like, uh, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse where the first one didn't set the box office on fire, but had good word of mouth. And the second one was huge. I also, I like Chris Pine. And I, I, I find Chris Pine very entertaining. It took a while to warm up to him. I just because. His Captain Kirk, at least in that first movie, is like, hey, man, you're just, he's just running at 11 the whole time. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, yep, 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 yep. And so now that Chris Pine's like calmed down and settled into it, he's just like such a fun, he's like perfect for this kind of movie, this kind of like uh, leading man uh, or what have you. But David, you mentioned the script. This thing was written by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who've done part of some other movies. John Francis Daly, of course, also was uh, the main kid in Freaks and Geeks. I think he was the freak. Yes. Uh, now, I didn't I didn't do any research into this film. You said that this movie might have ended up in the some people are fans of it. Do you know anything? Are are these guys like uh, Dungeons and Dragons heads? You know, I was hoping to find some kind of article that espoused their love for it. But reading what what very little I read, they were fans of it. They're casual fans of it. But I think they mostly wanted to do right by the franchise. You know, they you know the script incorporated elements of the Princess Bride, Monty Python, the Indiana Jones movies. You know. When you're going to make a movie, use good movies as your basis. And I think, you know, again, they wanted something that uh, that wouldn't embarrass the fan base. You know, the, this whole thing was tied up in rights issues. I think Warner Brothers had claim to it. I think Fox had claim to it. And then Paramount ended up with it. And so when you have multiple studios thinking they have the rights to it, you have multiple people turning in scripts. I know at one point Joe Manganiello turned in a script. He was like, I'm such a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan. Oh, yeah, I want to write a script for it. And so, you know, obviously it didn't get made, but I like that there is a high profile actor out there, or, you know, a star, if you will, who who likes Dungeons and Dragons and could be a good measurement of like, okay, could we do better than this? Let's make a good movie out of this. <laughs> the worst we could do is Joe Manganiello. So, I mean, or every, every season. <laughs> now, David, I know that Daly and Goldstein, you know, were credited with the screenplay or got some sort of screenplay credit on Spider-Man Homecoming. I mean, those Marvel movies, like I, I, I read that book, uh, MCU, and just, you know, it talked about how common it was for like scores and teams of writers to touch a script and then whoever was last or first on it getting the uh, screenplay credit. So I don't know how much of the final script for Spider-Man Homecoming that these two wrote. However, they got some kind of Marvel in their DNA because this movie... D&D, H. Monkeys, is like a perfect Marvel mixture. It really reminded me a lot of a Marvel movie because it has such a good mixture of like bold characters, you know, exciting action pieces. And hell, they'll slam on the brakes, you know, for a bunch of gags and jokes, which I got to say, most of the stuff in this movie I liked. Like there wasn't like a gag where I was like, stop. I was like, more, more, more. Uh, So yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It definitely is an adventure movie in terms of like an action adventure but it definitely had enough action in it for us to talk about it in mountain terms. You know, one final thought, I'll put a button on what you were just saying right now. I really like the script of this movie because it's written with confidence. It's written with the confidence that the people writing it know these characters and they're not insecure about trying to deliver some kind of a backstory or lay so much track or, oh boy, we're going to get to watch Thomas and Martha Wayne die for the 20th time. This movie just puts the characters out in front of you, has the confidence that they can develop the characters as we go along, and they made a hell of a movie out of it. So I'm excited to talk about it. But David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Dungeons & Dragons movie questions on Google, the results (laughs) include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, who is the bird guy in the D&D movie? Oh my gosh, Mac, everybody knows that's former Denver Nugget, Chris Anderson. Mac, who is the cameo in Dungeons & Dragons? Well, David, of course, is Dungeons & Dragons' biggest fan, uh, Meshach Taylor from Designing Women. Will anyone appreciate that reference? No. David, what is the Dungeons & Dragons 2023 movie based on? The Dungeons & Dragons 2023 movie is based on the 2021 movie, The Black Phone. Mac, is there anything at the end of the Dungeons & Dragons movie? Yeah, David, it's behind-the-scenes footage of Hugh Grant grousing and complaining about all the bullshit he has to put up with in modern movies. Why do people keep hiring him? He clearly doesn't enjoy it. (laughs) 
By the way, quick note about this segment. I used to just type the title of the movie into Google, but mm-hmm. then now all the questions that pop up in the people also ask section are just like, is this on Prime? Is Dungeons and Dragons on Netflix? Where can I watch this? Is this streaming? Which look, granted, that's what people want to know. But we're trying to help the people figure this movie out, David. We're not just trying to figure out where to watch it. Now I want to figure out what is the best title for the worst search engine optimization. Let's put that up to Discord. Let's find out what movie should we not be searching for. But before we start talking about a movie based on a game where a roll of the dice can determine whether a character lives or dies, let's check in with two friends who roll the dice every time they get a chili dog. Will this be the one that kills me? It's a friendship check-in. Our friendship, David Hada, how are you? I am doing quite well. I must say that chili dogs will never kill me. They are my friend. But uh, I'm doing all right. I'm catching up on television, Mac. I'm a couple years behind, so I'm watching Severance right now. The girlfriend has already seen it, so she was excited to show it to me. Have you seen Severance, Mac Blake? No, it's also on my to-watch list, and (laughs) it's been collecting dust there for a couple years. (laughs) Uh, I'm halfway through it. By the time this episode is released, I will be done with the uh, one and only season of it. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I highly recommend it. But I do want to point out there's a moment in episode five, I think I'm going to say. And it reminded me of you, Mac. And I want to congratulate you on having a joke or a reference that will outlive you and will burrow itself into my head for the rest of my life. Uh, There's a moment where they're talking about the Metallica song, Enter Sandman. Mm -hmm. It's a video footage of this father and daughter playing it on a guitar and they're singing along and they got to the line, grip in your pillow tight. And I was reminded of a joke that you had in your standup where you talk about the, uh, the foppishness of the song, Enter Sandman. And so it's just this one snippet in my head that just keeps playing grip in your pillow tight, grip it. And <laughs> that's, that's you. You did that, Mac. You're going to live in my head forever. I like how you said it will outlive me. And then you'll remember it forever. Basically implying that you'll outlive me. In which case I would say, well done, David. Well done. <laughs> that's the plan, my friend. Yeah, but seriously grip your pillow tight. It's a, it's a weird warning from uh, <laughs> such a hard band, but the aunt of Snow White. It's a uh, <laughs> congratulations, Mac. That's good stuff. How are you, my friend? I'm doing okay. Speaking of songs, David, well, let me ask you this. Do you remember an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza, I think he was watching the movie Titanic, mm-hmm. and at like just a specific time of the movie, he yelled out a joke. Everyone in the theater laughed. And so he started going to more screenings of Titanic to try and like, you know, recreate that moment. I might be yes. getting the details mixed up, but I, I think that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, something happened to me. I was uh, backstage uh, in a green room after a performance and you know we're talking with people and jailbreak by thin lizzy came on hell yeah and and as we're talking i was like hey hold on guys are are you uh are you hearing this news report on the radio apparently there's gonna be a jailbreak in the town they don't even know where it is it's somewhere (laughs) and then just acting like the the song was a news report and reacting to the fact there's gonna be trouble and then we're Mm -hmm. not all gonna survive it's like oh my god the newscaster is doubting his own survival and i had to say the joke went over great david and it was so much fun to do that I was like, man, how do I get this song to play again elsewhere? Not, not because I want the laughs. I just want to do it again. But it's never going to happen. It was one and done. Well, let's see here. How many bars still have that, like, internet jukebox that ruined the whole appeal of jukeboxes in the first place? I mean, uh, probably a lot. But it's probably too loud at bars. It was a nice little 
quiet moment there was like, hey, hold on, everyone. And people held on. That's I want you to have your I think you should leave moment where you escalate this so much that you have to be the center of attention every time you oh, go to no. a bar. Oof, that was a, that was a black mirror you just held up to me, David. It's harsh. <laughs> Is it time to dive into a world of fantasy? Mac, get your magic cloak and stick. <laughs> we're going in. You didn't sound like you were... Uh, you're all in on that one. I truly don't know a single thing about Dungeons and Dragons. So David, just a level set in case people are unfamiliar with this movie. Can you give the back of the box description? I say box. Does this movie have a physical uh, video release? This movie does have a physical video release. More on that later, but short answer for right now. Yes, it does. Interesting. A charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers undertake an epic heist to retrieve a lost relic, but things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people in this hilarious and action-packed thrill ride. Critics are calling the best movie of the year, Lou Briscuso. Wow. Slow slow year for movies over at The Wrap, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, Lou Briscuso just got out of the coma. Great name, by the way, Lou Briscuso. <laughs> Lou Briscuso. I'm going to have to start writing sketches again so I can use the name Lou Briscuso. <laughs> it sounds like his name is Lube. Briscuso, but no, it's his first name is Lou, L-E-W, and then Briscuso. God damn it, I, I do want to write, I'm sorry, it's off the rails. I do want to write a cop show where a character's name is Officer Briscuso. Briscuso, get in here. Get your ass in here, Briscuso. Are you happy, Briscuso? You shot every balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Briscuso, you're all right. Starring Chris Pine, Star Trek, Michelle Rodriguez, The Fast and the Furious, Regé Jean Page, The Gray Man, and Hugh Grant, The Gentleman. 2023, 134 minutes, directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, rated PG-13 for fantasy action violence and some language. David, don't you hate it when things, look, things go awry all the time, right? But when they go dangerously awry? When they become hilarious and action-packed, there is nothing like it. Oh my goodness. What if we turn this down a little bit? But things go safely awry when they <laughs> run afoul. All right. Well, how does this movie start? And God damn it. First off, how long do we have to wait until we get to a fucking dungeon already? Mac, this movie begins in a dungeon. Oh, thank God. A fancy one where we meet two of our heroes, former officer of the law turned thief Edgen, played by Chris Pine, and his partner in crime, Holga the Barbarian, played by Michelle Rodriguez, as they sit in a cell awaiting their parole hearing. Edgen tells us the backstory of how he and Holga were jailed after a robbery attempt gone wrong. Edgen and Holga escape their parole hearing and set off to find Edgen's daughter Kira, played by Chloe Coleman. Right out of the gate, we start in this prison where we meet Edgen and Holga. They're in a cell. They get introduced to a new roommate. And the new roommate's introduction to Edgen and Holga is our introduction to Edgen and Holga. Mac, I like this introduction. It tells me everything I need to know about them, and it's entertaining to boot. Yeah, I like this intro as well. I don't have my uh, Fodor's Guide to Fantasy Monsters in front of me, but I, I believe it was some sort of orc, maybe, that was their roommate. And he comes in, and he's tough. Edgen starts cracking wise, and Holga quickly kicks his ass, uh, the orc's ass or whatever. And look, boom, we, we know him right away. Edgen's uh, smart, confident, smart ass, and Holga's uh, tough as hell. Yeah, Edgen's cool. He's knitting mittens while he's in his jail cell. Holga's enjoying a potato. She's having her potato time, which... I've never related to a character more. And, of course, this orc comes in. He's like, oh, we're going to be great friends, you and me. I've never been a roommate with a lady. And so Holga breaks both of his legs. I loved it. I love the dynamic between Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez. This is a really good introduction. And away we go. And also, now that I mention it, this is going to be Michelle Rodriguez's first movie on Punch Mountain. So uh, probably the first of many. Well, quick note, David. Uh, Edgen was actually... 
knitting gloves and then decided to switch it to mittens. Let's hear a little bit of this audio. I think I'm gonna do this without fingers and make it a mitten. I'm not trying to impress. Already a quick joke and already I like it. But yes, welcome action movie mainstay, Michelle Rodriguez, who I don't know if she stars in too many action movies where she's like the star. There's one where wasn't she like a male assassin that her the brain gets put in Michelle Rodriguez's body or something? That sounds problematic. But she she tends to play like a badass in a lot of these Fast and Furious movies, etc. But kind of a badass that's got like something to prove. Where Holga, it's kind of like a nice change of pace here for Michelle Rodriguez because Holga's definitely a badass, but Holga like does not need to prove it. And her performance kind of drifts a little bit into like Drax, Dave Bautista territory. And I don't mean that like her character's dumb because Drax is kind of dumb. I just mean there's a simpleness in it that is so enjoyable and she just knocks it out of the park. I thought she was great in this movie. Yeah, she doesn't have the most range of an actor. I don't think she was trained at Juilliard or anything. But if you write a barbarian role, she'll kick the crap out of that barbarian role. I thought she was terrific in this. So Holga and Edgin are working on the chain gang, just, I don't know, axing some ice or whatever. And Edgin is, he's pretty confident. He's pretty optimistic that they're going to do well in this parole hearing because he feels like one of the counselors who's going to hear their uh, parole presentation, Jarnathan, not Jonathan, Jarnathan, that that counselor's going to like be on their side or help them in some way, right? Mm. And so they go in front of this council. Jarnathan is not there. And Edgin like recounts his backstory and is a sort of a quick, well-paced thing. He keeps breaking in to ask about Jarnathan. It's a funny bit. I like it. And I mean, what in here do we learn about that's important? I think we, we kind of get their story about like what happened to them. But but yeah, as you mentioned in the intro, Edgin used to be a harper, which again, look, I know nothing about the Dungeons and Dragons lore. So if stuff is in here from the game and it's established already, please forgive me, D&D nuts. I do not know about it. But a harper is some sort of like, yeah, this volunteer hero force, hero squad. And so their backstory basically is... He was a Harper. Uh, this red Thayan wizard killed his wife. He quit the Harpers, and then he started a life of crime. He met up with Olga, right? And they meet up with some more people, and then he's like, tell you what, daughter, I love you, but daddy's got to pull one last job, and it does go awry. He also mentions uh, his buddies that they picked up along the way. You know, Justice Smith was a, a place of sorcerer. Hugh Grant plays a con man, and they're hired by another possibly evil wizard? Yes to pull off this job, and it did not happen. The con man Hugh Grant escaped, and Edgin was like, please raise my daughter Kira, look after her. And uh, the con man, whose name is Forge, was like, I absolutely will. And Holga and Edgin get sent off to prison, and then here we are at their parole hearing. Yeah, this feels like a lot of track to lay, but the again, the movie does a really good job of it. This whole sequence probably takes about five minutes. We get to learn Edgin's motivations. You know, we get to learn how he became a thief, but we also get to learn why we want to root for him. We know there's a good heart in there somewhere. We know he meant well, because the only reason he went on this one last dangerous mission that he was hired to do was because he wanted to obtain the the tablet of rejuvenation, which he was going to use to to try to bring back to life his his dead wife. And so his daughter would have a mother. That's very sweet. I, I, you know, that's really all I need to know to propel us through the rest of the movie. Uh, we also get to see the daughter grow up again, played by Chloe Coleman. Mac, this is her second movie on the mountain. Do you happen to recall her first? Uh, was it Gunpowder Milkshake? She was the daughter in Gunpowder Milkshake. That's right. 
I know she's also in the movie 65. So if we if we ever decided to talk about Adam Driver fighting dinosaurs, she'd she'd uh, she'd have a hat trick. How many episodes do you think we'll have to do before we get to that movie? Oh, uh, I saw it. It's okay. A lot, I guess. I mean, it's. Uh, I I thought it was fine. I thought it was fun. I just I don't feel the immediate need to uh, have 65 appear on the mountain. Fair enough. But while we're talking about actors in this movie, Hugh Grant plays Forge. He is going to be the duplicitous uh, sort of con man of the group. You know, you you said it at the top, Hugh Grant has to be Hollywood's favorite curmudgeon. He clearly does not want to act anymore, but they keep giving him money. What a weird career Hugh Grant has had. And you know what? I don't care how weird it got. It is putting him in roles like this. It is putting him in Paddington 2. He was really fun in, was it The Gentleman? Yeah. He was also in uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. as well. Wow. That's a movie I haven't thought of in a while. Yeah. But I really enjoyed this Hugh Grant, I don't give a shit era. Yeah. I, I'd be real surprised if Hugh Grant <laughs> knew one thing about Dungeons and Dragons. But look, it's like, you know what you're going to get from him, right? Like you want a bad guy in this movie and spoiler alert, he's a bad guy. That could be charming and then pull off some comedic roles. That's Hugh Grant, man. Or I say roles, excuse me, comedic lines. Uh, yeah, he's going to deliver, you know? Sure, when he's on the press tour for Wonka, and they're like, oh, what'd you think about making the movie? And he's like, I hated it. <laughs> then that's what you get. But I'm sure in the movie, is a little Oompa Loompa. He's perfectly, uh, you know, charming. He's got, got some jokes, probably. Yeah. Now, this council, David, I like the vibe of this thing. Because on the council, you have one person who looks kind of, I'm gonna, like a human, right? A humanoid. And then you have this other thing. It's some kind of like monster person. It almost looks like a uh, kind of a human-sized dragon in a way. Mm-hmm. And then there's a third council member who, again, I don't know the D&D term, but she's like a Lilliputian or something, but basically a, a same proportion of a human, just smaller. And we're going to see more of those uh, later in the movie as well. Yeah. But the fact that these different species, these fantasy species are intermingling, I like that about this movie. Because I feel like with a lot of stuff like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, it's like these different kind of like fantasy groups you know, be it orcs or white walkers or giants or whatever. Well, I mean, white walkers is a bad example because they're bad. Like elves, dwarves, whatever. They all kind of like live separately. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're intermingling, it's kind of got a fun like Star Trek, Star Warsy vibe. And the word I'm going to use here is universe It feels more universe to me. Like, oh, this, this feels like a thought out universe or world building. It's not just like, uh, you know, oh, over there, some rock trolls or whatever. We'll, we'll talk about them later. Yeah, it, I like I like the they got a good mix of weirdness. Yes, there's something very appealing about the diversity of this movie, whether it's diversity of species or whether it's diversity of the actual gang themselves. You know, like you said, I think one of the knocks on something like a Lord of the Rings is, well, there's a white wizard and then there's a white knight and then there's a white elf, and but this one has a variety of people and a variety of species i think that's really neat yeah if one asshole out there complained about the fact that there's a lot of people of color in prominent roles that person could self-combust because it's like i'm sorry what race is a theian supposed to be you know what i mean (laughs) like it's made up my man he's a magic immortal okay i like how for a lot of people like fantasy world just means oh their fantasy is just an all-white world uh which uh (laughs) you know boo But David, we get this, I mentioned earlier, this recurring bit of during the entire presentation, you know, Chris Pine Edgin had set up the fact that he he thought that this counselor, Jarnathan, was going to be the key to them getting pardoned. And he keeps asking about Jarnathan. Jarnathan and finally, Jarnathan shows up. And Jarnathan's kind of like a, like a griffin kind of looking person. He's got like wings and a beak, some sort of bird, uh, anthropomorphic bird person. And as soon as Jarnathan shows up, 
Edgen's real excited to see Jonathan, but here's their interaction. Before you announce your decision, I implore you to please wait for... Jonathan! Pardon my belatedness. I can't tell you how hot stuff away! I'll see you! Hold it, now! Ah! Release me, sir! She's throwing potatoes! We approved your pardon. Now, David, it turns out that they do not want Jonathan because Jonathan is sympathetic to their plight. They want Jonathan because he has wings. <laughs> and so then Edgen grabs onto Jonathan and he throws him out of the window because they're at a tower. And Jonathan, to save his own life, flies a little bit. And because of that, Holga and Edgen are able to survive this fall. The fact that that was Edgen's plan all along, I thought was so funny. And then as they're going out the window, the counselor's like, Whoa, 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 we approved your pardon. Just, that's a, mm, that's a great joke. Uh, LOL on that. I don't know if the plan is perfect in its stupidity or stupid in its perfection, but you hope that the, your lead character is going to think of some elaborate jailbreak. It's going to be cunning and it's going to outsmart everybody. No, hop on the giant bird and go out the window. I love this. Yeah, it's great. And they do escape and they start riding back to their town because Edgen in his mind, he's like, I'm going to ride back to the house and, and maybe my daughter Kira will be there. Yeah, but Kira is not there. They check the house. You know, he checks the cubby where she was uh, hidden as a little bebe and he only finds his loot. So they go commiserate Edgen and Holga. They go to a local tavern, try to devise a plan. They stumble across a weird animated flyer uh, that announces that uh, Forge is the Lord of Neverwinter and he's bringing back some very special event that we'll talk about in a moment. I like the scene between Ed and Holga. I think it establishes good chemistry between them. I think it establishes their relationship as more of a brother and sister type. I like their bickering. I like that they're not attracted to each other. This is also the moment where they mentioned Baldur's Gate in the movie where they're, oh, you've got to take a boat down to Baldur's Gate and head north to get to Neverwinter. And that's when I turned to my girlfriend. I was like, Baldur's Gate? She was like, yes, stupid. And I was like, okay, I'm caught up now. I also was like, Baldur's Gate? That's a game. I couldn't tell if like the game was part of the D&Dverse or if it was just a reference. Like if it's like, oh, uh, he's down at Tannhauser Gate. I was like, oh, Tannhauser Gate, where uh, he saw a tech ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. <laughs> wow. It's a Blade Runner reference. But no, you're right. It's a it's part of the, the D&D-verse. Also at this tavern, the, the barkeep asks if Edgen and Holga are a couple. And they go, no, 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 no. And Holga says, I couldn't be with this guy. Look at his, look at his lips. And as, as they're walking out, Edgen's like, what's the matter with my lips? And Holga says, they're too big for your face. Speaking of real devastating burns, uh, David, this is a, not an untrue statement about Chris Pine. I've always noticed his very prominent lips. Yes. Yeah, his pillow lips. Uh, that's the thing I remember about Captain James Tiberius Kirk is uh, his uh, kissable lips. Well, just his, he's almost got a little bit of a joker mouth, too. I mean, but look, he's a very attractive man. I, everyone agrees. Not taking anything away from him. I'm not kicking him out of my bed for eating... I'll look up something from the Dungeons and Dragons universe later. But they see the flyer that says Forge is now in charge of Neverwinter. And so where do they go? That's right. Edgen and Holga arrive at the prosperous land of Neverwinter. Is it a kingdom? You know, it might be a municipality, but Forge is now Lord of Neverwinter. And the evil Sophina, played by Daisy Head, is his top advisor slash puppet master. Hold on, David. Are, are, are Mario Brothers characters allowed to be actors? No, Mac. Daisy Head's the name of a person. Oh, so sorry. Please please keep going. So Bullet Bill. Uh, no, David Edgen. <laughs> right. So Edgen is reunited with his daughter Kira, but she wants nothing more to do with her ex-con daddy. Edgen and Holga are betrayed by Forge and sentenced to death, but manage to escape thanks to Holga's knowledge of cool axes. 
Edgen and Holga began making plans to rescue Kira from Forge, which means reuniting with their sorcerer pal Simon, played by Justice Smith, and enlisting the help of a druid named Doric, played by Sophia Lillis. Yeah, so Edgen and Holga show up in Neverwinter, and they turn the corner, and there's Kira. And I gotta say, David, ah, this is one of those like emotional scenes that has no emotion in it. Look, Kira is mad because she thought that the mission, she did not understand that it was for this magic tablet that would bring her mom back to life. She thought her dad, Edgen, was just doing it for money. So she thought, basically, my dad's a thief. He was trying to do one last job for cash, and he got caught, and that's why I don't have a dad. My dad sucks. It's like, okay, so maybe Kira is not excited to see Edgen, but Edgen would be over the moon to see his fucking daughter who he hasn't seen in two years. And then Holga later in the movie, you know, to jump ahead and kind of spoil an emotional beat later, the movie basically says Holga is Kira's, has been Kira's mom because mm-hmm. Kira's uh, bio mom died when she was a baby and who actually raised her was Holga. So the fact that you have this, you know, surrogate mother reuniting with Kira as well, and they're basically like, they give a hug, but they're more like, Ah, great to see you. It just is like, Mm. you know, maybe it's too much to have that kind of emotional outburst early in the movie, but you gotta, because this felt real fake to me. And I I know I'm harping on it too much, uh, no pun intended, but this happens in other movies and it it just, it it, uh, it bothers me, David, clearly. You know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think it bothers me in this moment because of the distrust, you know, at the foundation of why Edgen and Holga left, because I think Kira feels a little guarded even towards Holga, because Holga could have told Edgen not to go, but, you know, she was an accomplice. But I think for as far as the Edgen and Holga side of things, I think part of Edgen's growth is that he has to realize, hey, I was a terrible father. Maybe I am kind of a piece of shit. But I think in this moment, he's expecting, I'll show up and Kira will run into my arms. And when Kira doesn't run into his arms, he's more disappointed than anything else. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but this worked for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that as well. I just feel like if whatever he's thinking, if he hasn't seen his child who he loves in two years, that thinking would go right out the window mm-hmm. and he would just like, oh my God, Kira, but uh, he does not. But to be fair, you know, they are processing a lot because now Forge is the Lord of Neverwinter. It turns out when he was put in charge of raising Kira, he decided to become a better person. So he ran for office and became Lord of Neverwinter when the Lord of Neverember fell ill mysteriously, quote unquote. So now it's Hugh Grant running this kingdom. This is more great work by Hugh Grant. He's such a chunk of shit, this movie. I love him so much. Edgen and Holga show up and he gives Edgen a little bit of the business. So they go, oh, you're turning a little bit gray, are you? You look like a well-read fisherman with secrets. And he gets a hug from Holga, even though Holga hates his guts. He has a moment where he's... He's trying to have a conversation with Edgen and Holga, but he's more concerned with how hot the tea is. It's just really great work by Hugh Grant, you know, making the most of what could have been a secondary part. Yeah, it's you get a, a lot of Hugh Grant. It's like the most Hugh Grant acting uh, in this scene. He's really working for it. But here we learn the new lay of the land, which, as you mentioned, Forge is now in charge of this whatever it is kingdom. Uh, his number one advisor, oh shit, it's Sophina. Wait, I thought she was the you know, weird magic witch lady who trapped our heroes to begin with. And we also find out that Forge has been spinning a little bit of misinformation towards Kira. Because as we know, Edgar and Holga, they were not motivated by money on this final job that got him busted. They're motivated to get the magic tablet that would bring his wife back. But Forge has been telling Kira, it's like the opposite, that her dad was indeed motivated by cash and kind of 
not yeah, I'm gonna go, yeah, I'm gonna say poisoning Kira against Edgen. And so after Kira like storms out of the room, then we learn what's really going on, which is like, you know what? Uh, that was a setup from the get-go that Sophina always meant for these assholes to get caught, to like he and Forge had made a deal or whatever. Now Forge says, like, it's true. Once I started raising Kira, I actually liked doing it and I like having a daughter, and I don't want to give her up. And so they order the death of Holga and Edgen. They're quickly removed and taken out to some, you know, back alley of the castle, and they're about to be executed. Yes, they're made to kneel before the guard's axe blade. The guard raises his blade, and thankfully, Holga can spot the craftsmanship of a blade made by Garen Fohammer. And so she starts chatting up the guard, like, "Oh, you know, how do you take care of that? What do you, uh, what do you polish that blade with?" And that's just enough distraction to pull a brick out of the ground and use that to clobber the guard and use that to fight her way out. Mac, this is going to be my first mark out moment because I love a good only weapon I have fight where your back is pinned against the wall of the kitchen and the only thing next to you is a frying pan. So you fight your way out with that frying pan. That's pretty much what Holga does with this brick. She lays waste to all of the guards. I thought this was awesome. This is my first mark out moment. Yeah, it was an awesome fight. Michelle Rodriguez clearly rules at fight choreography. And there's at some point in this fight where Holga's like beating up a dude and he's like doubled over or something. And then while he's bent over, she kicks his head into a wooden crate. And that move, David, it was just such a fucking disrespectful kick. That was my first markout moment. Because, oh, hell yeah. That was when she shifted from like, I'm trying to win this fight to a little bit of a, I'm going to beat this dude down. And I, <laughs> I enjoyed that quite a bit. And at some point during the fight, Chris Pine's like, oh, now we're cooking or whatever he says there. It's, I forget, but it was, a, it was a good line. Yeah, I, I like the, this vibe of this movie. Yeah. And, and speaking of Chris Pine, there is a nice counter moment to, you know, while Holga is laying waste to all these guards, Edgen is still trying to cut the ropes off his hands. And so he's just, all he could do is root her on while he's dispatched. No, the, the dynamic is excellent here. I, I'm enjoying this fight. Okay, I looked it up. Edgen goes, we got him now, which is, again, he says we. He hasn't even, uh, <laughs> you know, cut off his like bonds yet. Not handcuffs, he's like, his ropes that he's tied with. So the fact that Holga is doing all the work. And also the fact that he chooses to yell that out at a one moment where someone manages to land a punch on her. Uh, just, again, this movie's ability, much like a Marvel movie, to mix action uh, with like well-landed jokes. Uh, right now, uh, A+. Plus. Mm-hmm. But they get free. They set out to find Simon. They find Simon in a nearby township where he's performing some really cheap spells for an indifferent audience. Like he's casting a spell so that the room smells like fresh cut grass. And he casts a spell to where a single flame comes from his finger. Everybody's unimpressed. But meanwhile, he's actually stealing from the audience. So, he, you know, this mediocre magic is just enough for him to perform his much better magic. I, I thought this was a good introduction to Justice Smith and the Simon character. Yeah, I like I like Justice Smith. Again, I have a four-year-old and sometimes he wants to watch uh, a movie again and again. And so I've seen Detective Pikachu a couple times that I like Justice Smith. And yeah, we learn Simon's like character arc, basically. He's like a Wizard of Oz character. Whereas he doesn't have confidence, that's what he needs to become a a better sorcerer. We also find out that he's still a thief. He's still like using his little magic show here to rob people of their belongings. And as the mob, angry mob chases him, he decides to join up with Edgen and Holga. And we got three 
Uh, we need a fourth. Who else are we going to recruit? We're going to go get a druid. We need a little bit of magic. We need someone who could shapeshift. And so Simon knows one. He knows Doric, played by Sophia Lillis. He tried courting her a long time ago. They went on one date, and she found his lack of self-esteem unattractive. I like the dynamic between these two also. I think they play off each other well. But then we go find Doric. We go find her rescuing another druid. And this is another excellent introduction to the character of Doric. Yeah, we see some of Forge's men, some knights of the kingdom, municipality, whatever. And they're about to execute a warrior woman, basically because uh, they don't have freedom of speech there. It's like, you criticized our lord, so we're going to murder you. And the gang watching from a distance is like, oh, is that warrior woman, Doric? And Simon, the sorcerer, is like, no, that's Doric, pointing at a horse that as we as he points at it, we see it transforming into an owlbear. What's an owlbear? It's a, an owlbear. <laughs> and... The owlbear, after laying waste to everyone, uh, transforms into Sophia Lillis. She was the young uh, redheaded lady in the Sewer Clown movies. It, part one. That's right. And she uh, beats up the guards and, you know, makes her escape with the uh, the warrior woman in tow. David, here's the thing, man. I think Sophia Lillis is a, a good actor. So I don't know if it's a choice she made or if the script just failed her. But honestly, her character is kind of dead weight in this movie. Like, I like her character's abilities, like the shape-changing ability. I, there's a really fun sequence coming up where they use the most of that. But you mentioned her dynamic with Simon. I got no dynamic from them. Like, it just it felt real lifeless to me. That's interesting. I, I was on board with it. And I, I'll play a little bit of audio right here. She um, She's being recruited by the gang, and she's not exactly enthusiastic about joining them. So how'd you come to live here? I was born to humans, decided they didn't want a tiefling child. What else took me in? I joined the Emerald Enclave to protect them. Well, see, that's all the more reason to join us. You're the only one who can get into that castle unseen and tell us what we're dealing with. As you can imagine, I don't trust humans. I find you to be hateful and selfish. Well, I'm finding you to be a little mean. I buy Doric and I buy the Druid's involvement in this because it does add a little bit more depth to the story. It does add an element Mm -hmm. of, you know, of trying to tell a story of exclusion, of vilifying a group of people because of their beliefs. You know, you could argue that it's maybe shoehorned into an, an adventure movie, but I like what they do here. And I also like Sophia Lillis in this role, you know, because she doesn't play it perky. She does play it with a little bit of distrust and a little bit of suspicion And I think the dynamic between Simon and Doric, where she's just not into him, but she sees value in rescuing them or joining with them. I don't know. It it worked for me. I I liked Sophia Lillis and I liked Doric's involvement in the group and the story. I mean, maybe it's just, it's like she's a Scottie Pippen on a team of Jordans. Because, you know, Chris Pine, he's at max charisma in this movie. And Justice Smith has sort of staked out his role, you know, a little bit. He's got some sass to him. You know, he's kind of, you know, talking back to Edgin the whole time. And then you have Michelle Rodriguez playing it very flat and very funny. And so the fact that Sophia Lillis comes out as also very dry, and I don't know, maybe that's the problem is what I'm trying to say with the script, is that you have someone crushing it as the dry character already with Michelle Rodriguez, but sort of like a dry schemer. And you have someone that's just a little too calm. To me, it comes across as just, I don't know, it, it didn't feel very engaging to me. I definitely buy that. I think if this was a basketball team, she would be more of like the three and D kind of person. She would just give you three pointers and some defense, but she's not a superstar because she doesn't have to be. But I think as far as the way she plays the character, I think there is sort of a humility to her in contrast to the humans in the group because, you know, she doesn't like humans. They're showy and they're braggadocious and they're liars and they're distrustful. 
So she's going to come off as a little more reserved than that. But yeah, when you're playing off of Chris Pine and his charismatic Han Solo type character, and when you're playing off of Michelle Rodriguez and her horny Chewbacca character, yeah, it's going to get lost in the mix a little bit. Hornier Chewbacca, David. Chewbacca is plenty horny. Fair enough. I saw that specially. It's so many kids. <laughs> but Mac, the gang devises a plan. They all join up and Dork sneaks into Forge's castle disguised as a fly. Uh, where there she discovers that Forge's vault is protected by an unbreakable spell from Sophina, because it turns out Sophina is an evil and powerful Red Thayan wizard. To get past the unbreakable spell, the gang goes on a quest to find the Helm of Disjunction, a helmet which can nullify any magic spell. The gang talks to a bunch of dead warriors to determine the helmet's whereabouts. Meanwhile, Holga also swings by her old house, hoping to get a quickie from her ex-boyfriend, played by Bradley Cooper in a surprise cameo, but Holga's ex has moved on. So we'll start this chunk with Sophina. She's talking with Zastam. Zastam was one of the leaders of the Red Thayan Wizards. He's just this sort of entity that lives in the corner of her room in the shadows. There's a real scary stories to tell in the dark vibe with Zastam, this sort of disfigured, rotting kind of skeleton apparition. I like this a lot. It reminds me that this is a PG-13 movie, and I think this is a solid PG-13 movie. I think you could show this to like an eight-year-old and they'll be sufficiently thrilled and scared at the same time. Yeah, I, you know, as you said that, I was like, I bet I could show this to a four-year-old. We're going to find out pretty soon. <laughs> but yeah, so Doric here, she's in a recon mission, right? We see these rich lords bringing in their money to uh, Lord Forge's vault. And the reason why they're bringing this money is because Forge is bringing on the Death Olympics, also known as the High Sun Games. He's going to put them on in Neverwinter. And so these other lords are coming and, you know, they're probably going to do some betting. So they're bringing a lot of fucking cash with them as well. But as they're loading the cash into the vault and Sophina is saying that she put a spell on it that is unbreakable, all of a sudden she's like, I sense a wild shape here, which is what they call Doric's character or, you know, her, her species or whatever. And then we realize a fly that we saw like moments earlier, that is Doric. And then you get a really awesome sequence here. It's an action set piece we'll call Changeling Escape. Because as Doric makes her escape, she changes from like a fly into a mouse, into some sort of weird chicken, and finally into this deer. And at some point, like a gate is closing, like, 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 and sliding under the gate is the deer. And like, I've never seen a deer, and you never will in real life, like, you know, basically go horizontal to slide under a door and then pop back up again. It's just not something deer do. So, like, I remember seeing that and being like, whoa, that is weird. That is weird. I liked it, though. It's fun. You haven't seen that Fast and the Furious movie, Deer Drift, where they just uh, drift for two hours? It's great. I also like that the appearance of the deer was a callback to uh, an earlier conversation where before they're trying to recruit the druids, they're explaining the value of a druid. We're like, oh, they can change shapes. They can become an animal. And Holga has it in her head. She just can't let go of the idea that, like, oh, like a deer. She can change into a deer. And Atticus is like, no, she can change into a bunch of other stuff. We're, we don't need a deer right now. So as they're retelling the story, you have Holga's reaction. And it's just a satisfied, like, so she did turn into a deer. I love that so much. I laughed out loud. It was it was a really good delivery by Michelle Rodriguez. Nice. And as Doric is recounting uh, what happened on her mission, she mentions this spell that was placed on the door. And Simon's like, man, that's an unbreakable spell. There's no way we're getting in that vault. The only thing that could get past that spell is this helmet of disjunction, which acts as like an EMP pulse for electronics. You put on the helmet, you attune with it, boom, it nullifies all magic around it. Now, David, something I like about this movie is whenever they have magic stuff in the movie, it does not feel like a MacGuffin. Like if you look at the kind of MacGuffins that are in Marvel movies, right? 
like the Infinity Stones or, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet itself. The power of these things is always kind of nebulous. It's like, oh no, this powerful thing that has a lot of power and can do power stuff. If it falls into the evil hands, they'll have the power to be super powerful. And you're like, I don't know what any of this shit does. And maybe because it's based on a game where if you have an object, that object has to have a purpose. But all the magic in this movie is grasp. Like mm. all of the magic items are useful and they have a stated purpose and what they do. And so the fact that it's like, we need to find the helmet because the helmet does this. It We still are in a magic world, but the quest feels very grounded. And like, I'm on board and I'm not like, why do they need this? What's going to happen? Which, you know, whenever that pops up in a Marvel movie, I quickly dismiss it. Like, okay, it doesn't matter. They said they're going to do this. That's what they're going to do. I don't give a shit. But the fact that I did not have to not suspend my disbelief, but I didn't have to dumb myself down in the moment to keep up with the plot. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a point I was going to make later in the movie, but we could talk about it now. I really like how the magic is framed. It's framed in the same way that you would frame like tech in James Bond, where it's this fun little gadget. You understand the purpose of the gadget. You understand what makes the gadget cool, but you also understand how it fits into their plan. I, yeah, no, the magic does not go over my head. It's not too rooted in the lore of Dungeons and Dragons. That's the thing I appreciate about this movie in general is that like, you know, I could very easily be turned off by these far-flung fantastical names of things or these far-flung fantastical creatures. But no, it's all very understandable. And for a novice like me, and a novice like the potential audience out there, I think this is well done. David, we did a show with Master Pancake Theater where we had to make fun of the first Lord of the Rings movie. How many times do you think we watched that movie? Holy shit. Easily 20, maybe 30 when it was all said and done? Yeah, at least 24, I think, in that original run. I still cannot tell you what that fucking ring of power can do, you know? <laughs> yeah. Different things for different people, I guess. That's great. <laughs> you know, like that... Uh, Whatever they wanted to do in that moment. Yeah, it's the stuff that dreams are made of. But when they talk about this helmet, Holga's like, oh, I know that helmet. In fact, Edgin is kind of surprised that everyone's heard of it. But Holga's like, yeah, my people actually fought a battle, like, I don't know, generations ago to find that helmet. And they're like, well, I'll tell you what, let's go find their bodies in a graveyard and we'll use a magic spell and talk to the dead. And Doric is like, Simon has been telling us the whole movie that you can't just say that magic can do something and it can do it. Magic doesn't work like that. And then Simon's like, actually, magic in this case does work like that. We totally can go interview some corpses. We'll go do that in a minute. But on their way to the graveyard to find these corpses, uh, Holga wants to swing by her old pad because even though her ex like left her, she's like, you know, I just want to stop by. So I'd grab some stuff. But really, she's still sweet on this guy. And who does her ex turn out to be, David? Uh, her ex turns out to be Bradley Cooper, Leonard Bernstein himself. Uh, he plays this little like Lilliputian, we'll call him for, for lack of a better understanding. He's this tiny fella, and uh, I guess Holga likes herself some tiny fellas because she is sweet on him. Well, uh, as Holga is talking to Bradley Cooper, I forget this character's name, Bradley Cooper's new girlfriend walks in, and she's like just like Holga, she's another warrior woman. And you're like, well, I guess this guy's got a type. But man, how, how'd you feel about this Bradley Cooper cameo? I mean, after you got over the initial, hey, it's Bradley Cooper. I thought it was neat. I thought it was fun. I thought the scene itself was actually rather interesting because this essentially establishes Holga's motivations because the story on Holga is she was banished from her tribe because she fell in love with uh, with another. She fell in love with uh, Bradley Cooper's character who plays Marmalin. And so she was banished and they're like, all right, fine, go live with your new lover. And so they made a little life for themselves. But Holga was never happy. You know, she wasn't 
with her family like she wanted to be. She kind of wanted to have it all. And so her motivation is, you know, I'm going to do this mission because I want to prove to my tribe and I want to prove to Marmalin that I'm not just somebody you can kick to the curb or somebody you can move on from. I actually have worth and value. But yeah, like I kind of wish I had seen more Bradley Cooper if you're going to use Bradley Cooper. First of all, you said little life together. How dare you? Bradley Cooper, (laughs) in like the later half of his career, I say later, it's not like his career is done. He's like a, if you ever see him interviewed now, he's like this super, almost too sincere person. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Bradley Cooper in this movie is like, hey, like if Bradley Cooper ever came up to me, I don't know why he would, he would not. And asked me how I was, I'd have to tell him how I was. I couldn't just be like, hey man, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like he seems yeah. like someone who's like, no, really, how are you? And for some reason in this role, I was like, I can't, he's too sincere. Bradley Cooper is really acting here. He's really putting some emotion into this. And for some reason, it was like too much for me. I was like, this should have been Paul Rudd. It should have been more sarcastic, more jokes. Instead, it was like, no, let's have some emotional moments here between Holga and this uh, person who's a sixth of her size. This might be too deep of a pull, and we might even just cut this all together. But I'll tell you who Bradley Cooper reminded me of. If you remember the movie Shallow Hal. There was a character who was like, who Jack Black thought was one of his rivals, that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was was sweet on this hunk, and it turns out to be this good-hearted guy who's, you know, is not a 10 in the looks department, but he's like, just earnest and sweet, and he's like, what can I do you for, Hal? He kind of reminded me of that. So if anybody gets that reference, then that's a fun little treat for you. <laughs> and if you don't get it, please don't go back and watch Shallow Hal. <laughs> Mistakes have been made in this world, and that was one of them. So Holga's like, fine, I guess I need to move on. And so they show up at the graveyard. Simon casts a spell. And here's how the spell works, is that it'll bring these corpses back to life. And you get to ask them five questions. And here, let's play the audio from the first corpse they dig up. Here we go. Were you killed in the Battle of the Everhorse? Yes. Great. I mean, uh, not for you. Sorry for your loss. Four more questions, right? Yes. No, 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 that, w- that wasn't for you. Did that count as a question? Yes. Damn it. Only answer when I talk to you, okay? Yes. Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't. Fantastic. Where's the shovel? So David, at the conclusion of the scene, those corpses tell our gang, you know who knows where this helmet is? Zinc. So really, they kind of didn't need this, right? Like, it just was the information they wanted to know could be told to them in 30 seconds. But the fact that the scene basically is like a gag scene with these five questions or whatever, I, I liked it. The gags in this yeah. movie fucking land. Uh, this, I like this movie. This is delightful because it's, it turns into a wild goose chase because they, they think it's going to be as simple as, oh, well, I know who ended up with the helmet. We'll ask him. But it turns out, no, I didn't end up with the helmet. I gave it to this guy. So they go find that corpse. No, I never even had it. You're thinking of my brother. And so they go to another corpse. Yeah, this is delightful. I'm very much into this. But it turns out that the person knows the whereabouts of that helmet is a hunk from Bridgerton, right? <laughs> That's right. It's Zank. So the gang sets a course for Mornbrin Shield to find Zank, played by Regis Jean Page, a seemingly immortal all-around do-gooder who also knows the whereabouts of the Helm of Disjunction. The gang follows Zank into the Underdark and the hanging city of Dolblund, where the helmet is being hidden. Zank retrieves the helmet, but the plan hits a snag when the gang is surrounded by Thane assassins. Zank defeats the assassins because Zank is perfect in every way, and Edgen gets his groove back when he devises a plan to escape a watery grave. God, are we ever going to get a dragon in this fucking Dungeons and Dragons movie? And a chunky dragon. Oh, I'm so there, sorry. There, you happy? Yeah, we I get am. the best dragon ever. <laughs> I am very happy about that. Before we get to that chonky D, let's talk about Zank. 
spelled with an X, according to the subtitles. He's probably got a chunky D of his own. He's a great character. He's perfect in every way. He's so perfect, your teeth hurt. Like, there's just that that saccharine quality to his earnestness. I thought it's it's a good compliment to the rest of this band of misfits. He also has a cool backstory sequence where they show him as a child with, you know, with the people of his land being attacked by the Red Thay and Wizards. It's a really cool, child-scary type sequence. I like this. Yeah, the backstory of the Thans is that it used to be just some people, right? Just some people going about their day, and then this one priest, uh, what's his name, Tazam or some Zamzam? Uh, Victor Zaz. No, Zastam. Yeah, he sees, he tricked the, uh, the people of, of Thea, or whatever the name of the kingdom, and he turned them into an undead army. So Zank's mom and dad are now like some uh, immortal zombies. And you think, we're like, oh, is he going to have to fight them later in the movie? No, he doesn't. But yeah, that's his, his backstory. And he's sworn to, you know, e- even though all fans at this point are either evil red wizards or sort of undead assassins, not Zank. He's a good one. He's a, he's a nice fan. Yeah, he got, he got away just in time. So he bears the mark. You'll see it on his forehead. He's got hair covering it, but he bears the, the Thane mark. But he's going to lead the way. He's going to take them into the Underdark. He's going to take them to the helmet. This is just more good chemistry between the crew. You know, we find out that, that Zank doesn't really have any sort of... He doesn't truck in figures of speech, I guess is what I'm saying. He takes things quite literally. So if he has something up his sleeve, he thinks he might literally have something up his sleeve. I think this is great. Yeah, it's another kind of riff on Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, which is, you know, if this movie reminds me of another movie in terms of its dynamic and energy, I'd have to say it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Because, yeah, at some point, Simon says something ironic and Zink chastises him for being ironic because Zink is pretty much perfect. Yeah, and like Guardians of the Galaxy, when they bicker, when our gang bickers, and there is a lot of, you know, inter-gang bickering, it's fun. It's not, like, annoying. I don't hate any of these characters. The way they kind of, like, rib and raz each other, it's enjoyable. Yeah, this is an excellent sequence. I had a lot of fun in this sequence because they're they're going through the Underdark. It's just series of caves and and you know darkness and spookiness they're heading to the to the hanging city there's a moment here where they encounter uh some creatures called uh Roshnan Rock Rochnan Rocknan forgive me I, I can read it better than I can say it but they're the intellect devourers they're the giant brains with feet that they stun their targets and they consume the brains of their victims and they take control of their body and they walk past the gang because none of them has the intellect that they want to feed on this is a character that I saw in Baldur's Gate 3 while, while my girlfriend was playing. And so to see this in the movie really made me happy. And it really made me happy for Dungeons & Dragons fans because how much of this movie is references for them? How much of this movie are they thinking, man, I never thought I'd see that in a motion picture. And here it is now. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really over the moon at how faithful this movie seems and how much service it plays to its fans while still being a general audience's movie. Yeah, you know, I did not know that these little, you know, brain dogs or whatever, that that was a reference to any kind of Dungeons and Dragons character. And so for me, without the knowledge, the scene to me was just like, let's stop here for 30 seconds and do a joke. And the joke worked. So yeah, I didn't mm. even realize it was fan service. And the fact that it can be fan service and also work on another level is just pure entertainment. I mean, that's that's what you're trying to go for with these movies. Yeah. And we're coming up on another entertaining moment to a really nice mix of humor in the middle of this action and in this dread. They come to a bridge and just across the bridge is the Helm of Disjunction. But this bridge has a lot of instructions to it. And in fact, let's play some audio of Zank giving those instructions. The helmet lies on the far side of this chasm. But be warned, the bridge is protected by an ancient gnomish trap. 
There is a precise formula we must follow so as not to trigger the mechanism. What's the formula? It's quite simple. Starting from the center, use odd-numbered blocks only, moving forward with each step except for every fifth step, which must be a lateral move. Left or right, it matters not, so long as the leader and the laggard remain equidistant, after which proceed. Again, odd-numbered blocks only. However, at the midpoint, we switch to even-numbered blocks. Same pattern except now lateral move after the fourth step, until we reach the three... I may have put my foot on the bridge. Didn't realize that's where it technically started. And so you'll hear at the end of that clip, the bridge falling because Simon accidentally stepped on it before he should have. This is really fun. You know, it's, and I really love Reggie Jean Page's delivery of this. You know, he's very straight and matter of fact, he doesn't emote too much, but the look he gives Simon, the withering look of how could you not be perfect like I am? I, I love this. I liked it too because it actually, the fake out worked on me. Like I thought they were setting up a very tedious sequence where they're all going to have to step on the very, you know, almost like that scene in Indiana Jones' Last Crusade where he has to step on the letters that spell Jesus in Latin. Like it's like, oh, we have to step on this block or in very specific. It's like, man, it's going to take forever. So the fact that Simon stepped on the wrong block and the bridge just completely fell down, I thought that was great. However, the gang is saved because a walking stick that Holga picked up from her tiny ex, Marmalade, turned out to be basically a portal gun. Simon recognizes it as a hither-thither stick or staff or something, and it basically mm-hmm. opens up a portal. They don't need that fucking bridge. They get right across, and Simon says something like, I'm useful for once. And so they go, and they I don't know if they've grabbed the helmet yet, but I do know the Thans show up, the Thane assassins that Sophina sent after them. And here we have another action set piece. It is Zank versus Adralis. Fight. Now, David, when I was trying to look up the name of the character Dralis, who's the head sort of Thane assassin here, played by Jason Wong, I came across a startling discovery. Tom Morello of Audio Slave and Rage Against Machine is in this movie. What? Yeah. As who? David, he plays Kamathi, Kamathi Stormhollow, whoever that is. This dude's got to be, Tom Morello's got to be like a D&D head because there's no other reason unless... Well, I don't know, either he's a D&D head or the directors of this movie are a big Raging Against Machine nut because that that's too random for it to be just like, oh, no, Tom Morello was walking by set one day. <laughs> oh, you know how he loves being in motion pictures. Sure, let's get him in there. Wow, I, I have to imagine he's a big D&D fan, but good for him for getting in this movie then. Tom, you want to uh, spend a day on the D&D set? Get with it now. And there he is. <laughs> But Zank kicks everyone's ass because Zank is fucking awesome. And he does like a no look behind the back, throat slit on Drawless because he fucking rules. And then he's like, all right, we got to get out of here. And Holga's like, you killed everyone. Why do we have to get out of here? And he's like, well, they come back to life. And sure enough, the bad guys do. And the bad guys are chasing our heroes who don't seem to notice that the rocks beneath them are not rocks anymore, that they've now stumbled into part of this underground world. It's basically a pile of human bones. And who is at the the cave that these bones lead to? It is a dragon, and the dragon has trouble getting out of the cave because his dragon is fat. This is wonderful. This will be an action set piece we call Escape from Chunky D, where they try to escape from the dragon. I love this dragon. How can you be terrified, or how can you root for the for your gang to get away from? What amounts to be one of the most adorable dragons I've ever seen in my life. You know, it's so simple 
it kind of blows my mind that like, wait, I don't think I've ever seen a chunky dragon before. That alone was entertaining to where I was like, yeah, I like this. <laughs> like the, the dragon escape, it was fine. It was a fun action set piece, right? I mean, it didn't blow my mind, but the fact that the dragon they're running away from the whole time was this, you know, chunky D, it was great. Yeah, and, and it's still a formidable villain. It's not like they just ran around him and then they were Ollie Ollie Oxen free. Like the dragon pursues them. There's a moment where they're trying to cross a bridge. The dragon hops on one end of the bridge and weighs it down. So they're sliding towards the mouth. But Zank, in his infinite perfection, jumps up and stabs the dragon in the snoot with his sword. It's the first real splash page moment of the movie for me. And I think at this moment, I I just called it. I was like, you know what? I really like this movie. It's official. I don't care how much is left. I don't care what kind of left turn it takes. This is a fucking awesome movie. I'm really having a good time. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. But the job is done. They get the Helm of Disjunction and Zank leaves the gang while Simon fails to attune with the Helm of Disjunction. With plan A off the table, Edgin devises a plan B to sneak Doric into Forge's vault using the Hither Tither staff. You remember the game Portal? It's that, but it's a stick. While Holga beats up everyone she can, Simon manages to finally attune with the helmet and open the vault, but the vault is empty and everyone is captured. So now that the gang has fulfilled this like side quest or whatever to recover the Helm of Disjunction, Zink announces he's going to take his leave. And Simon's like, hey, please don't go. You're awesome at fighting and strategy and everything. And Zink is like, I got my own thing to do. You guys do your own thing. And as Zink starts to walk away, Edgen goes, look at him. He's walking in such a straight line. He's approaching a rock. Is he going to go around it? And he's like, nope. Zink walks like right over the rock. He bounds up it and then keeps right on going. And even though it seems like a throwaway joke, I thought this moment was actually a, a nice reflection on Edgen in terms of Edgen's worth. Because if you look at it, Zink is better than Edgen, right? Like he knows more, he's smarter, he's wiser, he's tougher, he's stronger, he's faster. But Edgen's worth, his value to the team, is that Edgen is a schemer, right? He can look at things from angles that Zink cannot. If Zink sees a rock in front of him, what is he going to do? He's going to keep going right over it. Whereas Edgen would be like, stop, uh, I know the right angle to get around the rock and we can do it. I mean, obviously, their goal of this movie is not to climb or get around rocks, but you know what I mean. Because <laughs> at some point, they even, early in the movie, they're like, wait, she's tough. He's a sorcerer. What fucking good are you, Edgen? And he's like, well, I plan. But Edgen is not wrong there. He does plan. And it, speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy, if you look at the Star-Lord character, there kind of is no reason he should be in charge of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Gamora was like tougher. You know, Rocket was smarter and a better pilot. You know, it's the kind of thing like, why is this guy in charge? Just because he's a straight white dude? You know, it's that seems like I'm trying to play a woke character. But no, I think it's true, man. Like, you know, it happens often in movies where the leader is someone who's like the most fun to watch, but does not deserve to be leading the group. Edgen is the most fun to watch, but I think he does deserve to be a leader of this group. You know, besides the fact that he also helps motivate everyone when they get down, he's got a way of looking at things that really serves this team. Yeah, I mean, we're a week away from Bad Boys 2, where that third act was Mike and Marcus, these Miami PD officers, leading a group of ex-Deltas into Cuba. Like, why are the ex-Deltas taking orders from these two cops when it should be vice versa? But in this movie, there's a possibility of thinking that we're like yeah edgen is the weakest of this group in terms of skill set but he still has the knowledge he still has the wisdom you know he has the experience to propel him to greatness if that makes sense i feel like i'm being overly schmaltzy with this but he's properly motivated and he's also 
the kind of person you want to follow into adventure. Yeah, he's like if Han Solo wasn't an asshole. I mean, look, we all love Han Solo, but he's a bit of an asshole. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But they do get to work trying to figure out how to break into the vault. Simon's working with the helmet. I like this sequence because it's one of those where the helmet transports him to another dimension. And we can put the Beastie Boys drop in there. But it's a dimension where he's stifled by his great-grandfather. His great-grandfather was also a great wizard. And he's like, well, you're not worthy to attune with the helmet. You're not worthy, worthy to wear this. And so Simon essentially gets rejected from the helmet. But in real life, to everybody else in the gang, this takes but a second. So it's just a sequence of Simon failing over and over again and having the helmet propelled off of him and, and Simon being propelled the other way in just instance. And I, I just, I really enjoyed this sequence too. It's very fun, but it's also establishing that, you know, we're headed to the end of act two and now we're starting to get some adversity here. Now we really don't know if Simon's going to be able to pull it off. He's getting ready to give up. He reveals that Edgen knew in his heart of hearts that Simon wouldn't be able to attune with the helmet. And this is news to Dork and Holga who feel betrayed. They feel like they've been led on this wild goose chase to try to figure this stuff out. And Chris Pine has a really good moment here where he reveals why he has to make this work. He reveals that, you know what killed my wife? I did. I was a bad harper. I stole when I shouldn't have stolen. The Red Wizards came after me and they killed my wife instead. So you know what? I don't want to live this life in vain. I'm going to sit here and think of another plan. And that's enough for the rest of the gang to join him. I thought this was really good. So they come up with a plan to use the Hither Tither staff to project a portal onto a painting that they're going to sneak into the castle. And then they're going to use that portal to get into the vault. This is a fun plan too. You know, they devise a scheme where they'll sneak the painting into a carriage that's on its way to Neverwinter. Edgin is hiding in the road and waits for just the right moment for the carriage to pass above him. And he sticks the painting onto the bottom of the carriage. And thank God those horses didn't trample Edgin because that would have been a really unceremonious end to a rollicking adventure. Just Edgin's body hiding in the leaves, uh, holding onto a painting with half of a portal in it. Yeah, I mean, this I wouldn't call this an action set piece, but it definitely was like a hijinks set piece. But it, it, it was fun. And yeah, it worked out. And also, I thought that the painting that they used to hide the portal, I thought it looked just like Paul Shear. And so I thought Paul Shear was about to show up in this movie. But no, 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 no Paul Shear. That feels like a missed opportunity. How do you have that painting and not have him show up as a live action version of that painting? Maybe they were going to cast him in and then he got COVID that day. I don't know. Oh, one can only hope. But this is really fun. The plan kind of goes sideways when they are able to sneak the painting and the portal into the vault, but the painting falls. And so they can't get out of the portal because it's, it's facing the ground. They need to figure out another plan. So there's a discussion about, okay, well, let's do plan C. Plan C is to go back to plan A and try to get Simon to tune with the Helm of Disjunction. Let's talk about, you know, well, why not just call it Plan A? Well, Plan A has stink on it. It didn't work. Let's call it something new with Plan C. I thought this was delightful. It's just more really entertaining bickering in the middle of a fun adventure movie. Yeah, like it was like, uh, it's like isn't Plan C just Plan A? And he's like, well, Plan A's got some stink on it now, which I, I like. Good line. Yeah, um, but this is also a really good motivational speech on the part of Edgin to Simon where he's trying to convince Simon, hey, this plan has to work. And Simon's just the same old, insecure, lacking confidence Simon that he's been this whole movie. But Edgen tells him, hey, do you remember back when we were running away from this one scheme and you couldn't climb, but then the dog was sicked on you and you learned how to climb? Or the time you figured out how to cast a spell that blocked arrows just as arrows were seconds away from hitting us? You need these moments of pressure. You need to feel at your worst so that you can be your best. 
And as he's giving this motivational speech, you could see it working on Simon, but it's also working on me as an audience member. I, you know, as someone who hasn't been convinced by Simon, Edgin is convincing me that Simon's going to be able to save the day. I thought this was very effective. So they get to work on plan C and, and Simon's going to keep attuning. He hands them all some sending stones, which are just stones that are essentially walkie talkies, which walkie talkies don't exist in this universe, but magic stones do. I thought that was great. I thought this is great use of magic as technology. Like we talked about earlier, you know, I, I thought this was cool. Yeah, there's even a little joke here where they put them too close together or they talk into them while they're too close and you get some feedback as if they were walkie-talkies. And some people might think that's cheesy, but again, they make the magic parts of this movie very clear. These are walkie-talkies, that's how they work. Now we all get it. But more great magic here because they have to devise a plan on how to even get into the castle in the first place. So they devise a scheme where... Edgin plays his lute and sings a fun little song and distracts the guards while everyone sneaks past. But it turns out this is just a projection. Simon is sending a, you know, a hologram, essentially, of Edgin. And Simon breaks his concentration. The Edgin hologram starts to melt and malfunction and just turn frightening if you didn't know it was not a real person. And there's such a great line read by the guard. It's so short. I don't know if I want to play the audio, but it's the guard watching Edgin essentially melt in front of him, die in front of him. And the guard just mutters, what madness is this? But there's such fear in the guard's voice. Credit to that actor. You did a really good job there. So yes, Ed is able to distract the guard of this, you know, projection of Edgin by he comes up and he's like playing some bard music on his lute. And all these guards are like, whoa, whoa who, who goes there? As soon as this dumb song starts playing, all the guards are like, hey, hold on, let the man play. And I will give the movie uh, a thank you for this. I think this and then one other scene where Edgin plays a little bit of music on his lute. And I don't know what you call this kind of music. I said bard music, but I fucking mm. hate it. And so the fact that, <laughs> you know, they kept it very short, I appreciate. Because no, I did not like toss a coin to your Witcher. If you know what I'm talking about in that uh, Netflix series, The Witcher. God damn, I something about uh, just was like... Please don't do this to me. And the movie didn't. I appreciate that. I guess I'll never do green sleeves when we go out to karaoke again. I really wanted to rock that green sleeves. Look, you can sing green sleeves as long as you're not wearing big puffy sleeves and, you know, like clicking your heels in the air while you do it. And then taking a big bow with a Robin Hood style cap with a big feather in it. Well, then it sounds like you've never watched me sing green sleeves, Mac Blake. I will say that in the Disney movie Robin Hood, I think the bard is that rooster voiced by Roger Williams. Could not be a bigger fan of his. Roger Miller. Roger Miller, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the rooster's name is Roger Williams. Oh, you're right. Okay, <laughs> my mistake. But they get into the castle. They split up. Simon's going to head to the vault. Holga's going to end up in, I guess, a foundry. And all of the castle guards are going to find her down there. This is going to be an action set piece we call Foundry Fight. And this fucking rules, Mac. This is a great Michelle Rodriguez showcase. She goes in there with her axe, the one that she got from the guard back in Neverwinter the first time. You think she's going to wreck shop with that, but she loses it pretty quickly. She drops it into some, some molten iron. So she's got to make do with what she has. There's hammers being used. There's molten chains being whipped around. She's beating up everybody. There's a moment here where she's got two guards pinning her down and there's a bow above her, like a bow and arrow. So she punches through a shelf to get to the bow, grabs the bow, sticks the guard's head into it, and and uses that. That was awesome. I was debating whether or not to mark out at that. And while I'm debating whether or not to mark out on it, the rest of the sequence is going on, and it ends with Holga being done, beating everybody up. It feels like a perfect time for a kill line, but Holga doesn't have a kill line. Instead, however, 
She looks over, notices her axe is still kind of in good shape, even though it's in that molten iron. She pulls it out and pulls out this fucking badass axe. It's like if a trucker's mud flap was an axe. It's just that cool. And her line is, I don't mind that. And that's something I would say. That's something like, oh, hello. You know, just a real quick aside. It's so cool. I did end up marking out. This will be my second mark out moment. It's really just a culmination of a job well done with this action set piece. You know, I watched this movie once all the way through, but my feral wife fell asleep about halfway into it. And so I watched the second half again with her. And the second time I watched this fight, I was like, you know what? These people that she's fighting, they are just kingdom guards. You know, they don't know the story, the fact that Sophina and Forge are like, you know, bad. They're basically security guards. Does Holga kill them? And no, she does not kill a single one of them. There is one guy that gets pushed into that, like the little lava pit or whatever, Mm -hmm. the forge that they're using for the swords. You see him, he's on fire for a second, but he just fall out. So he might've been burned severely, but no, I don't think she kills anybody. Just throwing that out there. No, it's a solid PG-13 movie. You know, it's, uh, people get the crap beat out of them, but uh, everyone's fine in the end. They just go get some Mountain Dew later. Yeah. Batman doesn't kill any cops. Same thing. But while Hulk is fighting all of these guards in the foundry, we do have the patented keep up cutaways. We're keeping up with Simon's thread. We're keeping up with Ed's thread. Simon has a moment where he does finally attune with the helmet. And the secret to attuning was believing in himself, essentially. You know, it's a really great moment. Meanwhile, we check in on Ed. He finds Kira. He gives a very thoughtful and sweet speech to her about how he realizes he is a bad father. He did lie to her. He did deceive her. He wants to be a better father. He wants to bring her mother back and and show Kira that they could be a family again. But then Kira starts to laugh a little too maniacally for a child. And it turns out Kira's not Kira at all. Kira's Sophina. Sophina was pretending to be Kira. And my first thought was, oh, man, because poor Edgen. That was such a killer speech. That would have won anybody over, and he fucking wasted it on Sophina. There's no way he's going to do it again when he finds Kira. So, yeah, poor Edgen on that one. But Sophina is revealed, and she, you know, captures Edgen. Everyone gets captured, and, you know, it looks like they're about to meet their fate. Yes, Mac, the gang is about to be executed, but instead, Edgen manages to talk Sophina into letting the gang compete in the mega-deadly High Sun Games, where they could fight for the right to be killed eventually instead of immediately. Navigating the arena's maze of death proves difficult since Doric and Simon have had their powers stripped, but Doric is able to regain her powers and devises a plan for the gang to escape the maze. The gang catches up with Forge as he loads his treasure onto a fleeing boat, but with Holga's quick thinking and a nearby basket of potatoes, she's able to free Kira from Forge's grasp. So we'll start off in the arena where the High Sun games are taking place. We get a shot of where the the rich people are. They're up essentially in the skyboxes. They're betting on who's going to live and who's going to die. There's a shot of some fun betting tables. It's kind of a mix of roulette and craps. This is the kind of otherworldly stuff I like, where I think I know what that game is. I definitely don't know what that game is, but I'm intrigued what that game is. And I know that everybody around there playing that game is super rich. And I really want those people to die first. I'd like to see, I'd like to see the rich and powerful die if I could, please. I think your wish might be granted soon. But there's also a fun moment here in the skyboxes where Forge, his plan is uh, almost complete. Like they've gotten all of the riches from everybody. They're getting ready to take off. And Forge says goodbye to Sophina. Uh, he's trying not to be too sentimental. He's trying not to be, you know, uh, overly sappy about it. But he wishes her farewell. And Sophina just says, get out of my city. And he's like, all right, see you later. I really like that. Like she's, Sophina is still being menacing. It's still very scary. 
but just to make that a humorous moment is, is a really nice touch. Yeah, I like that moment as well. And what exactly is going on here? So when Simon had the helmet of disjunction, he managed to get into the vault and it was empty. And Doric found out that the treasure was not in the vault, that Forge was loading not only his treasure, but stealing treasure from these lords. And he was loading it all onto a boat and get the fuck out of town. And it's like, why is he leaving uh, these high sun games where he's gathered everyone together? Like he's got this mass arena filled with people. You know, I, I think we all see it coming. The fact that Sophina is going to use this same like uh, spell that was in earlier in the movie that turned all the Thayan people into zombies, this army of the dead, that she was going to do that to this entire arena. So tens of thousands of people would now be a new uh, undead army for uh, Zazie Zamzam, whatever the bad guy, super bad guy's name is. <laughs> so that is what is really going on here. And so Forge has not only sold out our heroes, you know, for riches, he's basically willing to have everyone in his fucking kingdom, municipality, fiefdom, whatever, all those people turn to zombies just so he can be rich, richer, because he's already fucking rich. It's kind of a super low moment for Forge. But here we are. We, we cut to where everyone is waking up, our gang, at the High Sun Games. It's an action set piece we'll call Arena of Death. And as you mentioned, David, Doric tries to use her powers to transform into some kind of bird thing and fly away, but she cannot because she has this bracelet on. Simon has it on too. And these bracelets nullify any magic abilities. And even though when we watch these movies, I think, you know, at least I'm doing this, I don't know about you. We're always kind of looking for those, like, you know, Chekhov's gun, right? Like where mm. somebody mentions something, it's like, oh, we'll definitely see that later in the movie. I did not think about that these would be used later in the movie because they served a purpose when we first saw them. It wasn't just kind of like sticking out like a sore thumb. When they put the anti-magic bracelets on Simon and Doric, were you like, oh, these will come back into play? No, I thought they were just there to serve in that moment. I was very glad to see them come back. If I'm not expecting it and it pays off, it was really well done. But no, I just thought they would live there. So in this arena is a giant maze, and also there's like some panther that can project images of itself. It's got some weird like plant things. It's probably got a name, D&D Nuts. I don't know about it. But our gang is just one of the teams competing. The other team, David, did you recognize how they were styled? Yes, there was a wizard in a green cloak. There was a little tiny uh, Viking type dude. There was a few other people that looked familiar. Matt, it's the team from the cartoon, right? The 80s Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? Yeah, they're just, just like that cartoon team. What did you think of this, Mac? Well, I was kind of happy to find something. Because <laughs> I don't get any of these D&D <laughs> references. But, you know, like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, I was like, oh, I know those guys. That's the cartoon team. Yeah, I had the same thought, but I really, really liked this moment because it wasn't something they didn't try to hit you over the head with it. They didn't have a moment where they're crossing paths and they kind of look at each other like, don't I know you? It's not, you know, overly cheesy like that. It was just something in the background. If you noticed it, fine. If not, it's not going to affect the quality of the movie for you, the enjoyment of the movie. But when it finally did click, when I finally did recognize that that's the team from the cartoon, I damn near cried. I kid you not, because just, again, like we talked about earlier with the Brain Dogs, just to have a moment like that for the fans, without beating you over the head with it, without losing the general audience, good for this movie, good for the fans. I, I was so pleased to see that. Yeah, it was fun and not forced. The gang does manage to escape not only the Super Panther, but they managed to escape the arena via some uh, like jello block that's also made out of like kind of a fast but not too fast acid. And they're also able to free themselves of their like anti-magic bracelets. And so now the gang is wandering around 
and uh, you know they're free, and they're free to you know possibly get the fuck out of there and escape. Yeah, they're they're free to rescue Kira. They know that she's going to be with Forge, so they're going to go down to the dock where Forge is loading up his boat. On their way there, they have a quick moment where Simon turns to Dork and says, oh, "Quite the second date, huh?" Because you know, of course, they had a famously terrible first date. And I just want to say, good for you, Dork. Because it's very clear that Doric has zero interest in Simon. She kind of gives him a side eye, like a almost a shrug, like, all right, dude, good for you. Because you very easily could have broken that man's heart in half in that moment and said, I'm not fucking interested in you. But you know you still have a mission to carry out. Thank you, Doric. But they do make it to the docks. They do find Forge, and Forge does have Kira. And this is a great villain moment for Forge because he's not so concerned about Kira, you know, He's not quite the father that he makes himself out to be. In fact, when he thinks that they're coming for his treasure, he uses Kira as a as a hostage. Like, oh, no, you don't. You're not taking my money. And puts a knife to Kira. And it's like, man, Hugh Grant, Forge, what a great villain. You're doing an excellent job here. Yeah, he turns out to be a real piece of shit. And with that knife through um, Kira's throat, you know, there, there's no way the gang can attack him. How are they going to get out of it? How are they going to separate Kira from Forge? Well, thankfully, Holga gets a hold of a potato, throws it at Forge's face in slow motion. It explodes on his face. I like that a lot. They are able to get on the boat from there. There's a moment where there's a POV from inside the boat. You kind of see the door frame. You see a guard hearing some commotion. And he's like, well, I wonder what that is. And then from the side of the frame, here comes Holga. There is no grace to it. There is no beauty to it. She just smashes the guard's head against the side of the door. I laughed out loud. This is the kind of barbaric action I want from Holga the Barbarian. Yeah, Holga rules. And as the gang escapes, Sophina starts to set her plan in motion. The first thing she does with this red murder cloud called the Beckoning Death is that she murders uh, all those rich dudes, David, that you wanted to die in the the little, the VIP betting lounge. She kills them all, turns them into zombies. That was very satisfying. Like in that moment, you think, man, if they're the only people to die, job well done. And it turns out they might be because the gang sets sail on a boat full of treasure, but the gathering clouds over Neverwinter means Sophina is summoning the beckoning death to kill everyone in the arena. Guess our heroes are going to have to be heroes one last time. So the gang returns to fight and defeat Sophina, but Holga is killed in battle, stabbed by the Red Wizard's Blade. You know there's no cure for a Red Wizard's Blade, David. I do know that, Mac. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Edgen takes the Tablet of Rejuvenation that he was saving to bring back his wife, but could his wife defeat a whole army of palace guards? I don't think so. Edgen resurrects Holga. Turns out the real treasure was indeed the friends we made along the way. The gang are awarded medals of hope for their bravery and daring do, and Zenk captures the Fugitive Forge. So the gang returns to Neverwinter to try and take down Sophina. And there's a lot of like callbacks to some magic stuff they set up earlier in the movie. It's an action set piece we'll call Streets of Magic. And during this attack, as things are kind of going right for our heroes, as they make some maneuvers that actually work, a lot of their maneuvers go wrong. And I like that. I like that it's not like a perfect, like, oh, these guys, it was not a flawless victory. And I enjoy that about this team and about this fight in particular. Yeah, I like that they're thinking on their feet, you know, because how the heck do you beat the beckoning death? Like, it is a cloud. It is a smoke monster that has defeated cities before. So they they devise a plan in real time where they're like, hey, you know what? That hither tither staff, that's got a range of a quarter of a mile. Let's use that to dump treasure all over the city. And that way people will spill out of the arena trying to gather that treasure. I like this plan. I thought it worked really well. But it does leave me wondering a couple things. One, 
uh, one of the townspeople mentions it where they're like, hey, look, Forge is dumping treasure. He's keeping his promise. He said, if we stayed for the entire games, we would be rewarded with a gift or a prize. So essentially, it seems to me that the gang is helping Forge to get reelected. And I don't like that. I don't want to see Forge win a second term. But also the townspeople are successful in, in clearing out of the arena. Sophina is left with an arena floor full of red smoke that doesn't go anywhere. And so she, she's defeated. But what's going to happen with this red smoke? Is it going to dissipate at all? Is it going to spread? Is it just going to stay there forever? And so like, okay, I guess we have to build a new stadium. We can't use this one anymore. There's uh, the beckoning death is sitting there. Well, the fact that she wanted to get people together in an arena to smoke them, I think the smoke does dissipate. Now, the, my main problem with this is, uh, David, you, you live in the United States of America. On Black Friday, you know, we used to see stories about people being trampled to get into Walmart to buy a TV. You have an arena full of, uh, I don't know, medieval fantasy folk, and all of a sudden, like, treasure's being dumped in one specific part. It's not being handed out. You get a car and you get a car. It's just like, first come, first serve with this treasure. There have been so many, like, trampled bodies in this arena, but apparently Neverwinter is the most polite kingdom on the planet because uh, they all they all make it out of there in one piece. But Sophina's plan to turn everyone to zombies is thwarted, and now she's fucking pissed at the gang, and she goes after them. That's right. She's going to use her powers to animate this dragon statue, and it's going to become a real dragon, and it's going to do Sophina's work for her. And this is going to turn into essentially a four-on-one fight. It's going to be the gang versus the dragon. I love this, and the reason why I love this, we've talked about this before with other movies, is it's everybody working together but using their skills. This is the movie's Avengers moment, where Simon has his magic, Holga has her brute strength, Doric turns into an owlbear. Like, they're all trying to beat this dragon with whatever they can. David, you left out somebody. What does Edgen do? What does Edgen do? What is Edgen doing right now? Edgen hits Sofina with his fucking loot. He keeps using his loot <laughs> like a club. And Edgen, my man, I've been gassing you up the entire movie, but you gotta bring something to the table better than a fucking loot hammer. Also, what is this goddamn loot made out of that you've bonked it on someone's head like five times and it does not break? Is he Iron Loot Edgen? Like, I don't know, man. It just it seems like this guy's got to get one more skill. Because when he was a Harper, the loot was like his cover. It wasn't like his whole shtick. He's not El Kabong, right? Yeah. So like, <laughs> for wrestling fans, he's not uh, Jeff Jarrett. Oh. Yeah, I mean, maybe if his loot said, uh, this machine kills uh, Red Thane wizards, uh, like uh, Woody Guthrie, maybe that would have been, I'm out of guitar references. But there you go. It was the Avengers if Captain America, instead of a shield, had a fucking loot. So <laughs> it lost a couple of cool points for that. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was embarrassed to not know what Edgen had or what Edgen was contributing. But the fact that he bonked her with a loot, while funny and entertaining, was not terribly effective in ultimately defeating Sofina. You're absolutely right. But it is enough to kind of distract Sofina. And while Sofina's distracted, she does a little bit of monologuing. She's starting to wither. She's starting starting to turn to like her true self. I guess Sofina was just the beautiful woman that she disguised herself as. But she does a time stop on all of them uh, before she monologues. And so, of course, she thinks she has all the time in the world. Yeah, the time stop basically like freezes them in time. They're all like, you know, uh, mannequins, essentially. Yes, it was the thing she used early on to uh, to get them captured in the first place when they were trying to rob that vault. But the time stop doesn't work in this instance. And it turns out, bleep, here comes Kira. She had her invisibility pendant that uh, Holga gave her earlier in the movie. And she appears and she slapped one of those anti-magic cuffs onto Sophina. So her magic doesn't work. And I thought that was a really great moment. I thought, you know, I wasn't expecting the cuff to make a return appearance. As, or 
I guess I wasn't expecting a cuff to work on a red wizard, but I'm not going to nitpick here. But Sophina has a moment where she's like, well, you know, if you could move this whole time, why did you let me monologue? And Edgin's response is, so Doric could do this. And so Doric, as an owlbear, grabs Sophina and basically goes Hulk and Loki from the Avengers movie, just beats Sophina into the ground, stomps on her, throws her against a building. I love the crap out of this. This is my third mark out moment. Yeah, my only uh, punch up here is uh, the final throw that Doric as the owlbear does when she throws Sophina like in, into the air and her body lands across the building. I want her body to break in half when it hit that building. The, the fact that her body seemed to remain intact, no blood, seemed a little fake. But here's the thing, David. When Doric transforms from her owlbear form into her human form, she's kind of like smiling a little bit. It's like, man, the rage or anger you felt as the owlbear, again, I need that reflected in Doric. I, I just... I don't know who to blame for this, but like her character, again, a little too dry when I need her not to be. Mm -hmm. I definitely would like some sort of post Hulk action where you're just like breathing heavy and maybe you're just wearing pants or something a little more PG-13 than that. But it turns out this isn't a completely happy ending because Hulk got stabbed in the melee. She got stabbed by Sophina's blade. And as we remember from earlier in the movie, when when Edgin's wife was killed by a red wizard's blade, nothing can counter that. Simon's magic cannot counter that. But maybe, just maybe, they could use the tablet of rejuvenation, which they do. So Michelle Rodriguez, I can think of two other movies where she her character dies, not counting Fast and Furious, because we don't really see that. I don't remember seeing those movies and thinking Michelle Rodriguez was bad at uh, death acting. But her acting like she's dying here, I mean, I, I thought it was terrible. Like something, I don't know why, it just really took me right out of it. I mean, it's like, look, we can't all be Denzel Washington, right? And be America's greatest death actor. I don't want to criticize too much because I thought Michelle Rodriguez did a great job in this movie. But does not, look, does not ruin this movie. Does not ruin her character. But watching it, I was like, oh, this is bad. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, I'll, I'll meet the movie more than halfway and just say, well, I don't think barbarians are prepared to die. I think it catches them by surprise. And so that explains a lot of that explains away a lot of the acting there. But I'll tell you what, this scene still worked on me because it is the moment where you realize, or at least Edgin in the movie realized, that Edgin doesn't need to revive Kira's mom. Kira's had a mom all along, and it was Holga. And so they do some flashbacks to earlier times when Holga is raising baby Kira. It's very tender. It got me. Kudos to Kira in this moment. Kudos to Chloe Coleman. She's doing some work here because Holga is dying. Edgin is trying to put a happier spin on it. So he's playing some bard music. He's playing their old favorites. And so Kira, Chloe Coleman, has to vacillate between being very sad that her surrogate mom is dying, but also putting on that happy face because the song is supposed to cheer them up. Credit to Chloe Coleman. It's hard to cry and smile and work through the pain at the same time, especially for a child actor. I, I wanted to give some attention to that. Yeah, I still was not getting the surrogate mom vibes from Holga in this scene. And, and I, did, I did like it, though, in terms of how it fit the story. When Edgen realizes that, like, I don't have to bring back Kira's mom because Kira's mom is right here. Not taking anything away from his, his dead wife, but just that it would mean more to his daughter. He's sacrificing something from himself because he wants his wife back. But in letting his wife go, and there was a speech earlier on when Zink sort of like laid the groundwork. He's like, your wife's been in the spirit realm or whatever for a while now. Bringing her back to this world is kind of ripping her out of the other one. She may not like that. But the fact that he was sacrificing his own desire to give his daughter, you know, back her mom, it, it fit. But it still was like, oh, wait, Hulk is a surrogate mom? I guess so. I mean, it fit. It's just, I don't know. 
It didn't. That emotional beat did not hit. But look, our heroes did it. And we start to get a wrap-up epilogue. And it turns out this epilogue is uh, Forge, as we find out later. This is Forge. He's now in prison. And this is Forge's speech to the parole board. But what do we learn in this ep- epilogue? What do we see? Oh, my gosh. We, we learned that uh, the gang are a bunch of heroes. They have a little Ewok celebration at Neverwinter. Uh, Never Ember, uh, the previous lord, he's revived because he was under Sophina's spell. And that spell is broken. Uh, we also get a moment where Simon kind of sidles up to Dork and he's like, hey, can we give a relationship another try? Can we go on another date? And Dork gives in and she's like, yeah, fine. And Simon gets excited. She's like, calm down. Like, she's she's already tempered at it. I love that. We also do get one final moment where we see Zank. He is the one who captures Forge. Forge is running away with, with a large chalice and that's just going to be the only treasure he hangs on to. But Zank saves the day because he's perfect in every way. Uh, this is a pretty satisfying wrap-up. Yeah, when the gang is getting their medals, we see the person who gives Holga her medal is another very tiny Lilliputian man. And Holga looks at him like, yeah, I'd fucking nail that. She's got a type, David. Uh, she likes the Lilliputians, I guess. But as I said, this wrap-up is being narrated to us by Forge, who is in this dungeon we saw earlier in the movie. And when they deny his parole... He has the same plan as our hero did at the beginning, Edgen, which is basically to grab a hold of Jarnathan, this bird man, and leap out the window. However, the council is not going to be fooled twice. They've bricked up the window, so you could no longer, you know, grab onto Jarnathan. But David, when Forge makes a grab for Jarnathan, even though I saw it coming, one of the council members goes, Jarnathan! And there's something about her <laughs> delivery, and I'll be honest with you, also the name Jarnathan. I loved it, David. It was my second markout moment, because it was one of the things where I was like, I want it to happen. And then with the cry of Jarnathan, it did. So yes, I loved it. In fact, well, let's just go ahead and put the audio drop in here of the line read, because I agree, it was like a chicken delivering this line. Jarnathan! <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. I hope next time I get hurt, instead of, you know, trying to not swear in front of my kid by saying like, son of a B or like MF, I can just now say Jonathan. Yeah. As we're wrapping up this movie, I do have one final mark out moment. It is going to be for the song that plays over the end credits. It starts to fade in. It takes over as the credits come up. This is going to be Wings of Time by Tame Impala. I did not know this was a Tame Impala song. I thought the music supervisor had dug up some obscure Blue Oyster Cult album cut, and it was going to fit right in with the 70s nerd vibe of Dungeons & Dragons. I like this song a lot. I like when a song leaves you feeling good as you walk out of the movie. This is a terrific song. This is a terrific way to cap this movie. This will be my fourth markout moment. And you're definitely walking out of the theater or your bedroom, I guess, because that is the end of Dungeons and Dragons, colon, Honor Among Thieves. So, Mac, before we get to the markout moments like we usually do, I did have one last question for you regarding this movie. This is a question maybe I've asked a few times before when there are more than one solid performance by an actor in this movie. Mac, who is your MVP for this movie? I think there's at least three candidates. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people turning in great performances, but my choice is Chris Pine and it's not close. I think this kind of movie, you have to hang a lot on the lead. I think that charisma has to carry you through like a two-hour runtime here, and I never got tired of him. To be that likable for so long, and not just to be likable, but to deliver, you know, he did it all. He had some funny moments, he had some emotions. 
Uh, this was this is Chris Pine's movie in my, in my opinion, and I thought he did a great job. I agree. As much as I want to give credit to Michelle Rodriguez for being cast perfectly, I thought she did an outstanding barbarian. I thought Hugh Grant was an outstanding villain. I thought he was that right mix of just slimy but also menacing. But yeah, at the end of the day, Chris Pine carries this movie. I, I thought he did a, a fantastic job. What a great year for Chris Pine. He was in this movie, which underperformed at the box office, but was good. He was also the voice of the villain in the movie Wish. Oh! A Disney animated film that dozens of people saw. <laughs> I saw it twice in theaters, and I gotta say, not great. Good Christ. Anyway, let's look at some numbers, David. How many markout moments did you have in this movie? How many moms? I had four moms in this movie. This movie saw me coming. How about you, Mac? Uh, I had two. David, is this someone's favorite movie? I have to imagine this is a D&D fan's favorite movie. Like, to like something as niche and as unsexy as Dungeons and Dragons and to have an entertaining all audiences appealing type of movie. Congratulations, D&D fans. You've got a fun movie out of this. I think this is some people's favorite movie and those people are probably like 12 or 13. And I don't, I'm not making fun of it. The same way that a youth might've walked out of the movie, The Mummy and really enjoyed it. I think this movie is, is entertaining enough and it's a fun action adventure. And I think maybe even kids who like aren't into D&D they see this movie, they see this world that they would enjoy it. And it might, you know, be something kind of new to them. I would be surprised if there's some younger audiences that this is their favorite film. All right, David, time for some bunch ups. We're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? Mac, I'm going to do something a little different with my first punch up because it's something that already exists. I just wanted to bring some attention to it because I thought this was neat as hell. We were talking earlier, you had asked me if there is a, a physical media version of the Dungeons & Dragons movie. There is. It's available on Blu-ray. And one of the audio tracks on the Blu-ray is an audio description track. You know, you'll see it on, on Blu-rays these days. It, it helps the visually impaired enjoy the movie. It describes the action for them. Well, it turns out the Blu-ray has an audio description track that is narrated in the style of a dungeon master narrating the campaign. And I cannot wait to buy a copy of this. I cannot wait to watch this movie with that track. I think that is so stinking cool to take something that could be otherwise, you know, sort of this utilitarian feature on a, on a Blu-ray and make something extra out of it. I'm really looking forward to that. That's an amazing idea. Yeah. Along those lines, my first actual punch-up is going to relate to this hypothetical uh, physical media copy, which actually exists. I want an Easter egg on that Blu-ray, and I want it to be well hidden because I want it to be a little naughty. And by that, <laughs> I mean the look that Michelle Rodriguez gives that Lilliputian at the end of the movie when she wants that D, and she even bites her lip and kind of gives this aw shucks look. Let's see what happens next, all right? Okay, let's say you have to hit the left arrow button a few times, maybe highlight some image in the corner, but you click that, and it's some good old-fashioned S and F, Max. I'm sucking and fucking. I want to be able to find that Easter <laughs> egg and turn this PG-13 into a hard R. See, if you look at their size compared, I don't think she wants the D. I think that dude is putting on a scuba helmet. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that dude is... He's going in. You know what I mean? I think. <laughs> I hope he can hold his breath. Oh, we're going feet out on this one. <laughs> oh, um, God. My final punch up. Look, I like Hugh Grant in this movie. I like him as a villain in this movie. I think this is a fantastic villain, but there's one thing missing. You think about the top of the villain mountain. It's, for me, it's Brad Wesley. It's Ben Gazzara and Roadhouse. He was everything Hugh Grant was in this movie, but at the end of Roadhouse, he also tried to kill Dalton with a fucking spear. 
I want a Hugh Grant fight at the end of this movie. I want him to rip his shirt off. And it's this kind of paunchy dad bod, but he's still rocking it. And it's him and Chris Pine going to blows. And maybe he holds his own. Maybe he has a little trickery up his sleeve. But I want to see a Hugh Grant fight. I want to see a a fun villain turn into a formidable villain. And that's really all the punch-ups I have. I think this is an exceptional movie. Yeah, maybe not go full-on Gazera, but it'd be cool if he did have a special skill, like he's uh, deadly accurate with a throwing knife or something. So there at the end, you know, he just throws a couple knives at uh, Elgin and crew. And that's why it's extra sweet that he gets crushed by a potato right in the mm-hmm. face. I got a few punch-ups. Number one, what's the first creature we see Doric change into? Uh, the owlbear. The owlbear. And then in terms of fantasy creatures, that's it. I mean, there was like a chicken, kind of like a weird prehistoric chicken that she changes into. But that's because she saw some other ones uh, like standing around. I want to see some more crazy animals. Like that she changes into like, uh, Albert, what's next? Big Moose? I don't know. You show me movie. Next punch up the Bradley Cooper cameo. I do like Bradley Cooper. His performance though, it was like too heartfelt. Hmm. I honestly think a better, another person would have better served the cameo. And I was originally going to say Paul Rudd, but over the course of this podcast, if I had time to think about it, I mentioned him a couple of times. What if it was fucking Dave Batista himself? I think that would have been great. Especially like a, a little tiny Dave Batista who look, I like him as an actor. I think that would have been just, I don't know. I think it would have been awesome. No offense to the Coop man, Bradley Cooper. (laughs) My final punch up, David, gay this movie up. There was one character in this movie that I was like, oh, this character is gay. They're very queer coded. And then at the end of the movie, they were not. You have a very diverse cast, but of the four main leads, two of them are proud and out members of the LGBT community. The fact that that representation did not carry over to their characters on screen felt... I don't know. The way some shitty people might complain about like, oh, this character being gay was like forced into it, almost like J.K. Rowling being like, oh, uh, by the way, uh, BT Dubs, uh, Dumbledore's gay. But this almost felt like the opposite. Like at the end when like Simon was like, hey, let's date Doric. I was like, you guys are not supposed to date (laughs) unless Doric changes shape. Uh, I I don't know. So this movie felt surprisingly, I don't know, straight washed. Is that a thing? Oh, I like it. That makes a lot of sense to me. That is my, those are my punch ups. All right, David, please join me in the Punch Mountain video store. As you know, this is an all action movie video store. And we have three copies of Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. So what shelves, what subsections of action would you stock these movies in? All right. The first one is going in the intellectual property shelf. I don't think we thought of a more clever name for it, but this will eventually go right alongside the 2000s, (laughs) the 2000 Dungeons and Dragons, maybe. My second copy is going to go on 2020s action. This will go right next to RRR and some other uh, soon to be awesome movies. Maybe we'll see the beekeeper here in a few weeks. I don't know. My third copy is going to go on the newly established Michelle Rodriguez section. This is our first Michelle Rodriguez movie. This will not be our last. You're not going to stick this in like sword and sorcery? Oh, jeepers. I always fucking think (laughs) there's always one that I forget to do. Yeah, of course that makes sense. Which one would you swap that out with? 2020's action? Intellectual property. I just, I think that's like uh, at this day and age, it covers too much. I think mm-hmm. if you're looking for this movie, if you were in, in our Punch Mountain video store and you're looking for this movie, I think Sword and Sorcery is probably where people would head more than just uh, general IP. No argument here. If I could buy a fourth copy, and I don't know if I can, David, uh, times are tight. I might go so far as to even put this in, oh gosh, I don't know. Would you put this, I mean, I think in terms of action and adventure, I think Sword and Sorcery kind of covers that. Mm-hmm. But would you put this in action comedy? It is a very funny movie. Oh, jeepers. I didn't really think action comedy. You know what? Maybe not. 
I don't know if it sets out to be an overt comedy. I think it just happens to have funny moments. Uh, you could certainly make a case and I wouldn't kick you out of bed for it, but I, I, I would not. All right, David, it's come down to it. We have to reveal the position of Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves on Punch Mound, aka the definitive ranking of action movies. Before the mountain givest unto us its answerest, I'm sure that works, where would you, David, a mere human, where would you rank this movie? I would have a hard time placing this movie on the mountain. Let me preface this by saying the thing I've said for the past two hours. I love this movie. I really enjoy it. I hope more people get to watch it. But saying that, I also know what a hard road an adventure movie has. You basically have to be Jurassic Park. And even then, that's under question with some people. But with that said, let's not lose sight of the fact that there are some really excellent fights in this movie. There is some really excellent combat. Uh, like you said, Michelle Rodriguez does a really good job with fight choreography. I thought Reggie John Page did a really good job with his fight choreography. There's some awesome sequences throughout. There's some really memorable stuff. And it's a group of likable people. But with all that said, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I'm excited to see where it ends up. What are your thoughts on this one, Mac, before we reveal? I think this is a rock-solid middle-of-the-mountain movie. I mean, it definitely gets top marks in terms of how enjoyable it is and how much fun it is and how watchable. But the action, you're right, it doesn't hit the same way that a more action-focused movie might. But you're right, David, the action in this movie is no slouch. It leads with character over action, which I do not mind. But that might hurt it a little bit if if it was making a case for the top. But yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, what the mountain says. Oh my goodness, David, help me shove this giant chonky dragon out of the way because the rocks are falling. <laughs> no, the rocks are falling off the face of the mountain. It, it crushed that dragon. And the golden letters are revealing the position of Dungeons and Dragons. And his position is number 24. That means 22 blade two, 23, the seven samurai, 24 Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves followed by The Woman King, Gunpowder Milkshake, Desperado, and The Mummy, which I thought The Mummy and D&D would be a little bit closer together because these movies kind of remind me of each other. But, you know, something we talked about with The Mummy is it's not it doesn't have a lot of action set pieces. Dungeons and Dragons mm. definitely tried a little harder when it came to action. Yeah, this is a pleasant surprise. I, I, I also would have expected it somewhere closer to The Mummy, but to see it get a little extra bump, to see it get rewarded for just being such a winning movie and such a winning formula. I'm very happy with this. Yeah, this movie definitely sets forth the mission statement of what I want to have an action movie, which is, is fucking fun with a capital F. David, you hear that noise? Oh my God, is my owlbear loose? Uh, you know what it might be, but that noise is actually the sound of a horn calling us to action. We talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're supporting UNICEF. UNICEF, a.k.a. the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, helps save and protect child victims of war and violence through evidence-based interventions and response services in more than 140 countries. UNICEF is working alongside partners to meet the urgent needs of children impacted by wars in Gaza, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to UNICEF USA. For more information on UNICEF or to donate directly to them, visit unicefusa.org. UNICEF is U-N-I-C-E-F. Folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for all things Mac Blake. Next week, we're celebrating the year of the dragon by going from one dragon movie to another from 1973, directed by Robert Klaus and starring Bruce Lee. 
It's Enter the Dragon. I'm excited. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.